Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another season of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-1, Chinese and Mongols. You may be wondering, why are we discussing the Mongols when this series is supposed to be about the Mughals? After all, the Mongols were from Mongolia and the Mughals were from India. And the Mongols were polytheists, while the Mughals were mostly Sunni Muslim. Well, not quite. The Mughals weren't really from India, even though they did rule over most of it. And while the original Mongols were animists, many of the later Mongols accepted Islam. As we mentioned in our bonus series on Malik Ambar, the word Mughal is the Arabic and Persian word for Mongol. And the founder of the Mughal Empire, Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur, was actually a descendant of Genghis Khan. So we're going to begin at the beginning with Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Mongolia before Genghis Khan. Today, Mongolia is a large, landlocked, sparsely populated country of about 800,000 people. It has a very harsh environment with long, cold winters, short, wet summers, and very little agriculture. Food in modern Mongolia mostly comes from pastoral animals like sheep, camels, cattle, and goats. Historically, Mongolia has never been a major trading state. Mongolia simply does not have many natural resources that the rest of the world wants. And with the little that is available, life is so sparse and simple in Mongolia, there's just not much left over for trade. There are not many permanent cities in Mongolia. Even today, most people live in yurts, which are circular, portable tents on a collapsible frame. Families and tribes travel together, always searching for grazing lands for their animals. And this nomadic lifestyle was made possible by the Mongolian horse. These horses were critical to life in Mongolia. They were necessary for controlling large flocks and herds of animals. They provided milk and sometimes even provided meat. This is how life is in Mongolia today. And this is how life has been in Mongolia for centuries. Before Genghis Khan, the people of Mongolia were always at war with themselves. The various Mongol tribes fought each other for local dominance. People within the same tribe fought each other for tribal dominance. But no single Mongol tribe or clan was strong enough to dominate all the other Mongol tribes. The Mongol tribes often waged border skirmishes and conducted raids against their Chinese neighbors. And to make matters even more chaotic, most of China was not unified either. The Chinese fought each other just as often as they fought against the Mongol raiders. Early Life of Genghis Khan the man we now call Genghis Khan was born into a relatively strong clan called the Borjigin around 1162. 
His father, whose name was Yesugai, was the leader of the Borjigans. Genghis Khan was actually born with the name Temujin, which means blacksmith. According to legend, he was named after a man his father had killed. The Borjigans had a long-standing feud with the Tatars. When Temujin was only 10 years old, his father was killed by a group of Tatars. One of his father's rivals then became the clan leader and exiled Temujin and his family. Temujin and his family lived a life of poverty for several years, though Temujin now became the head of his family at a young age. Around the age of 13 years, Temujin married a young girl named Borte from another clan called the Karaite. Not long after the marriage, Borte was kidnapped by another clan called the Merkit. This was in retaliation for Temujin's father kidnapping Temujin's mother many years earlier. Temujin then organized a raiding party to attack the Merkit clan and get his bride back. And even though they were outnumbered and Temujin was still only a teenager, he defeated the Merkits and rescued his wife. This victory led to an alliance between Temujin's Borjigin clan and his wife's Karaite clan. Temujin's father-in-law, Togrul, was the chief of the Karaite clan and he hated the Merkit clan. Togrul was grateful to young Temujin for rescuing his daughter and provided him with a bunch of troops and weapons. Togrul, that is Temujin's father-in-law, also convinced Jamuka, who was the chief of another clan called the Jadaran, to ally with Temujin. Because of Temujin's charisma and victories, other tribes wanted an alliance with him also. Finally, in 1185, Temujin was elected Khan, or leader, of the Borjigin, regaining the position that he had lost after his father died. The Lost Years Temujin's sudden rise to power made many people envious of him. After all, he was only 23 years old and already a Khan. There was another reason a lot of people disliked Temujin. And this is something we'll see over and over again as we discuss the Mongols. Authority, rank, and position in Mongol society was based on nobility and birth. However, Temujin refused to follow this tradition and appointed people based on their skills and their experience. This allowed people who were not from noble families to rise to high levels under Temujin's leadership. Since this naturally appealed to many men of low birth, Temujin attracted a lot of highly skilled men who would otherwise have been stuck at the bottom of the social ladder. But this policy also angered other people who benefited from the old way of doing things. And one of those people was Temujin's supposed ally, Jamuka of the Jadaran clan. By 1187, the relationship between these two men was openly hostile and they eventually went to war. 
They fought at the Battle of Dalan Baljut, where Jamuka's army numbered about 30,000 mounted soldiers. Jamukin decisively beat Temujin, who wound up fleeing the battlefield. As a result of this defeat, Temujin's father-in-law, Togrul, was also exiled. Temujin disappears from the scene for the next eight years. We just don't have that much information about him during these quote-unquote lost years. He may have become a mercenary or he may have joined a Chinese army. Whatever he did during these lost years, when he reemerged, Temujin seemed to have a completely different understanding of leadership and military tactics. And he had also gathered a small but strong army to support him. Uniting the Mongols The first order of business for Temujin after his return was to go against the Tatars. He took his small fighting force and joined with the Chinese Jin dynasty in a war against the Tatars. The Jin dynasty controlled much of northeastern China. Their territory covered what is now just east of Mongolia all the way north of Korea into the far eastern Russian territory of Primoye. By this time, Togrul, Temujin's father-in-law, had regained leadership of the Karaite clan. The two men joined forces with the Chinese Jin dynasty against the Tatars in 1196. Temujin was victorious, and this helped boost his reputation as a competent leader and warrior. Unfortunately, the relationship between Temujin and Togrul soon began to deteriorate. It seems that Togrul was upset with Temujin for continuing to refuse to follow the Mongolian tradition of elevating people based upon their birth. Temujin insisted on promoting and appointing people based on their merit and their skills, not what family they were born into. This animosity eventually led Togrul to ally with Jamuka. This was Temujin's arch enemy, the man who had beaten him many years earlier, leading to Temujin's lost years. This also divided the Mongol tribes into two camps, one that supported Temujin and another that supported Jamuka and Togrul. Not surprisingly, many people preferred Temujin's policy of awarding people based on merit and skill. But there were also many who opposed this and preferred the traditional policy of awarding people based on their nobility. There was also another Chinese dynasty called the Karakitai who supported Jamuka, Togrul, and the traditionalists. The Karakitai were based in western China and their territory included eastern Kazakhstan and western Mongolia. The Karakitai had a strong relationship with Jamuka and even gave him the title Universal Leader. This favoritism made other people jealous. One of these was Togrul, Temujin's father-in-law and former ally. Togrul wound up splitting with Jamuka, creating yet a third faction. Even though Jamuka and Togrul were no longer allies, they still both hated Temujin. 
Togrul and Jamuka went to war against Temujin, but they did not work together. Temujin easily defeated his two enemies, and Togrul tried to flee the battlefield. However, he was soon caught and executed. Togrul's son, Singam, who was Temujin's brother-in-law, became the new leader of the Karaite clan. Singam reversed his father's decision and allied with Jamuka again. In 1202, Temujin fought the combined forces of Singam and Jamuka in southern Mongolia. This time, Temujin's foes worked together. Temujin, being vastly outnumbered, was defeated but managed to safely retreat from the battlefield. Surprisingly, Temujin rebuilt his army pretty quickly. It seems that despite his defeat, thousands of capable men were willing to join him due to his merit-based advancement policy. Even though he had now lost two major battles, people of lower social status cared more about getting a fair opportunity in life. Within a year, Temujin made yet another comeback. In 1203, Temujin attacked the Karaite tribe, inflicting a severe defeat on them. The following year, he went to war against another tribe called Namain, which was allied to his archenemy, Jamuka. Temujin was outnumbered once again. He now had to face the combined forces of both the Namain and the Jadaran tribes. But things were different this time. Traditional Mongol battle tactics were very simple. The two opposing forces would rush at each other and engage in chaotic melees that were basically just massive brawls. Temujin did things differently. He did not just order one massive charge and hope for the best. Instead, he gave orders to messengers on horseback. These messengers passed his orders on to his commanders at different parts of the battlefield. These commanders were now able to synchronize and organize their attacks. This allowed Temujin to use different components of his army to strategically strike at weak points of the enemy's formation. This resulted in a decisive victory for Temujin. Jabuka escaped the battlefield but was soon caught and executed. By the spring of 1205, Temujin had defeated all of his enemies. He called a Kurultai, or communal gathering, of the different Mongol clans and tribes. During this gathering, he declared himself the new Kagan, or leader of all the different Khans. No one opposed him. Temujin had finally united all of the Mongol tribes under his authority. With this new authority, he gave himself a new title, Genghis Khan, which means universal ruler. Genghis Khan claimed to be divinely guided and that it was his divine duty to create a global Mongol empire. Here are two quotes from Genghis Khan himself that helps define what he thought his role was. The greatest happiness is to vanquish your enemies, to chase them down before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see those dear to them bathed in tears. 
Here's another quote. I am the flail of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. So this gives us an idea of how Genghis Khan felt about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan's empire. Now that Temujin slash Genghis Khan was the leader of the Mongols, he began looking to expand his territory. His first expansion outside of traditional Mongol territory was towards the Shishia, a kingdom in northwestern China. Their capital stood where the modern city of Yinchuan is today in central China, just south of Mongolia. The Shishia kingdom shared a border with Mongol territory, making it an easy and obvious target. Initially, Genghis Khan sent several raids into Shishia territory. This was more about gauging the enemy's response in preparation for the real war. During one of these raids, the son of a Chinese noble was captured and brought before Genghis Khan. Somehow, this young noble wound up joining the Mongols and becoming captain of Genghis Khan's personal bodyguards. This was an interesting aspect of Genghis Khan's leadership. The Mongols often tried to recruit leaders or people in leadership position from their enemies. This made the Mongol army very diverse and provided them with multiple perspectives of any given situation. This policy also helped the Mongol military leadership gain valuable intelligence about their enemies, all of which ultimately made the Mongols stronger and more flexible. After these initial raids, Genghis Khan launched a full-scale invasion into Shishia territory in 1209. Before long, the Mongols were besieging the capital of Yenshuan. Finally, the Shishia king capitulated and agreed to become a Mongol vassal and pay tribute. Next, Genghis Khan turned his attention towards the Chinese Jin dynasty. As we mentioned earlier, the Jin dynasty ruled much of northern China. While the Shishia kingdom was roughly to the west of Mongolia, the Jin dynasty was mostly to the east of Mongolia. The Jin dynasty was supposed to be allied with the Shishia, but did not lift a finger to help them when the Mongols attacked. Because of this, the Shishia provided troops to assist the Mongols against the Jin dynasty. Now, the Jin dynasty and the Mongols had been enemies for over a hundred years. We mentioned earlier how even before Genghis Khan, various Mongol tribes used to constantly cross into China and raid Jin territory. Likewise, the Jin dynasty, who were much more sophisticated and organized, used to exact tribute from the Mongol tribes. The current ruler of the Jin dynasty expected this to continue and demanded Genghis Khan pay tribute. Well, that wasn't going to happen. This angered Genghis Khan, who then sent his forces across the border into Jin territory. 
Just like his campaign against the Shishia, Genghis Khan started with small raiding parties. Their job was to gather intelligence, gauge the enemy's response time, and terrorize the locals. These raids sent the peasants fleeing from the borderlands and countryside into the towns and cities. This, in turn, put tremendous strain on these cities, which were not prepared for this sudden influx of people. Before long, the starving peasants who were crowded into these cities began to riot. The government responded by sending in troops, which led to the deaths of thousands of people. And that's when Genghis Khan struck, launching a full-scale invasion of the Jin Empire. By 1213, the Mongols were besieging the capital, Zhangdu, which is where the modern city of Beijing is. The beleaguered Jin dynasty finally agreed to pay tribute to the Mongols in return for peace. This agreement, however, only temporarily stopped the fighting. The war between the Mongols and the Jin dynasty would last another 20 years. After this victory, several smaller local kingdoms voluntarily submitted to the Mongols. It was clear the Mongols were a powerful force to be reckoned with. Most of these small kingdoms were not even being threatened by the Mongols. But they felt it was in their best interest to pay tribute and get with the Mongols while the going was good. The Mongols then moved on to the Karakatai kingdom to the west. We mentioned the Karakatai, also known as the Western Liao dynasty, a few minutes ago. They had helped Jamuka back when Genghis Khan was still known as Temujin. The Karakatai were a Sinicized Mongolian dynasty. This means they were ethnically Mongolian, but had adopted Chinese culture. The Karakatai territory was enormous, covering much of western China all the way to Bukhara in Uzbekistan. In 1216, the Karakatai attacked the Karluks. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we mentioned the Karluks in one of the earlier bonus episodes. The Karluks, who were Turkic, were one of those small kingdoms that had voluntarily submitted to the Mongols. When the Karakatai attacked the Karluks, this gave Genghis Khan the excuse he needed to launch an invasion against them. By 1218, the Mongols were victorious and the Karakatai were gone. With this victory, the Mongols now shared a border with the Muslim Khwarezm Shah Empire. This would begin the long, bloody, and brutal Mongol invasion of the Muslim world, which we will discuss in more detail in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. 
If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-1. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of the previous season of the Umayyad Caliphate. Well, last season, we picked up after the defeat of Ibn Zubair in the year 72 AH. Abdul Malik ibn Marwan of Banu Umayyah was the caliph. At the same time, the Azadika Khawadij, who were a big problem during Ibn Zubair's time, were still an issue in Iraq and Persia. Over in Khurasan, there was another issue, but this time it was a conflict between two members of Banu Tamim. These were two individuals named Bukir and Bahir. We'll discuss their conflict in more depth in a few minutes. In order to resolve this issue in Khurasan, Abdul Malik sent a member of the Quraysh, a man named Umayya ibn Abdullah, as governor of Khurasan to bring unity there. Abdul Malik also appointed a man named Hajjaj ibn Yusuf as governor of Iraq in the year 75 AH. And Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was giving command over the cities of Kufa and Basra, really the provinces of Kufa and Basra. However, his authority was excluded from Khurasan and Sijistan. There were also two prominent commanders, one named Muhallab and another named Ibn Mikhnaf. They were charged with leading the fight against the Azadika Khawarij in Persia. We have discussed the Azadika Khawarij and Muhallab in our Ibn Zubair series, so if you need to know the origins of those two entities, then I advise you to go and start from there, inshallah. During this battle against the Khawarij, they managed to kill Ibn Mikhnaf, and so eventually Abdul Malik appointed Muhallab to lead the entire campaign against the Azadika Khawarij. Saleh ibn Musarrih was from the Jazeera region of the Middle East. This is where Iraq, Syria, and Turkey all come together. Saleh ibn Musarrih, he organized his Khawarij cell to overthrow the Umayyads. And in this organization, he managed to recruit a disgruntled Umayyad soldier, a former Umayyad soldier named Shabib ibn Yazid, who was from Mosul. This new Khawarij group plotted to kill Caliph Abdul Malik during the Hajj pilgrimage, but that plan failed. 
And so they went to their backup plan, which was simply to rebel against the Umayyad Caliphate. They launched their rebellion in 76 AH with only 150 men. However, Saleh ibn Musarrih, he used surprise attacks, hit and run attacks, and other guerrilla tactics to defeat the Umayyad army in the northern part of the Middle East. This is, of course, the Jazeera region. After defeating the Umayyad army in the north, Saleh ibn Musarrih and his Khawarij group, they headed south towards where modern Baghdad is. Remember, this is during the Umayyad period, so Baghdad did not exist yet. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, this was now his territory, so he sent an army of 3,000 soldiers after this small group of Khawarij, which was only about 150 men, as we mentioned. The Umayyad army defeated the Khawarij, and they even killed the leader of the Khawarij group, Saleh ibn Musarrih. However, Saleh's protege, the disgruntled former Umayyad soldier Shabib ibn Yazid, he took over the Khawarij and the remaining members of the Khawarij group, there are only about 70 now, and they escaped. And after they escaped the battle, they then attacked the Umayyads at night, and this was the beginning of a recurring trend. Shabib and the remaining Khawarij, they would plunder the Iraqi countryside, they would attack different towns. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf would, would conscript an army, he would force the men of Basra and Kufa to join the army at the pain of death. I mean, literally at the pain of death, they had to go into the army. And then he would send them out into the desert to find the Khawarij and fight against them. However, Shabib and the Khawarij would use guerrilla tactics to outwit this Umayyad army. These conscripts were not very motivated. They were only fighting because they had no other choice. It was either fight or die. Over and over again, the Khawarij, a small band of Khawarij, would defeat Umayyad armies 10, 20, 30 times their size. 